All right. Good evening, everyone. Let us let us begin. So, welcome again to our weekly Tehillim Shir. I know I promised that last week was the last Shir on Perek Vav, chapter six. Okay, I guess I'm not a man of my word. I apologize. We will spend one more week in Meretz Hashem on Perek Vav. Um, because the truth is, it happens to be that there are so many beautiful psukim and so many meaningful motifs that are included in this particular capital, even though, again, as we'll see as we go through Sefer Tehillim, David HaMelech does repeat so many of the same themes, same basic ideas throughout Tehillim. But I wanted to draw your attention to one specific pasuk. First of all, we begin by thanking the Engelsberg, Dinovitzer, and Steinberg families for dedicating this series, Le'ilo Nishmas Harav Yitzchak David Ben Meir Aryeh Zichron Levracha. We hope that in the merit of our Tamatra, the Nisham will have an Aliyah and the family in so I want to draw your attention. Remember, again, we've already, you're already well-versed in Perek Vav in Sefer Tehillim. Although, again, at first glance, it appears that Tavar HaMelech is referring to physical illness. We saw, again, the physical illness could be the result of one of the punishments he received in the aftermath of the episode of Bathsheba. The other possibility is it's not physical illness at all. Instead, it's a metaphor for Golos. But again, we've seen Tavar HaMelech dealing with adversity, dealing with tragedy, dealing whether it's physical illness, spiritual illness, a sense of emotional illness, and David HaMelech always persevering. But I want to draw your attention this week to one Pasuk. And it's Pasuk, the underlying Pasuk. David HaMelech says, remember again, when we started this series, I pointed something out to you, which those of you who've, who we've been learning to Helen together for many years already know that David HaMelech is the master of optimism. And there's one thing you could always count on and say for Tehillim, that no matter how bleak or how difficult a particular capital may look, because sometimes David HaMelech gets quite intense with the description of his personalistic agony, you know that he's always going to come out of it. There's always something positive. There's always something upbeat. Even if nothing changes in David's circumstances, there's often something which changes in his attitude. So if we take a look at Pasuk Yud, David HaMelech says, after describing all of his difficulty and adversity, Shama Hashem Tichinasi, Hashem Tefilasi Yikach. Literally translated, the, ho- the Lord has hearkened to my supplication. Shama Hashem Tichinasi, Hashem has heard my Tichina, my supplication. Hashem Tefilasi Yikach. Literally translated, it means Hashem will take my prayer. But of course, in this context, what it means is Hashem will accept my prayer. So the Eben Ezra and the Radak point, point out a basic idea. They say, number two, Moda ki Hashem lo harofim so David HaMelech, remember, is healed from his illness. And again, whichever type of illness we're referring to, whether it's physical illness, whether it's David HaMelech's spiritual illness, David HaMelech comes out of the illness a healed man. But he recognizes that his refuah has nothing to do with the people around him and everything to do with the God who supports him. So that's what says Radak, Moda, Shama Hashem Tchinasi Hashem Tefili Seikach means David Amalek is admitting or expressing gratitude towards the Rafua, towards the healing that Akadosh Baruch Hu has given him. Pavor Sheshanene love. The Radak says the same basic idea. Shama Hashem Tchinasi Hashem Tefili Seikach, Yikach Kimolakach, the Tamikach Bezos Saeis, Bechois, Bevot Tfila Sea, love, Yikab Lena Baratzon. You know, it's interesting. That what David Amalek is highlighting over here is as follows. You know, sometimes you dive into HaKadosh Baruch Hu for something, and you get it. And you get it. 
And what's interesting is in those moments where you ask for something and you get it, it opens your eyes to the many other times in life that you've asked for something and gotten that as well. You see, every day we make requests of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but sometimes they're not even conscious requests. Right? Every single day I ask Kodesh Baruch Hu for my heart to continue to pump blood throughout my body. Now, I never actually articulate that, but it's a clear subconscious request that I'm making each and every day from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And there's a million such requests like that that I don't even ever articulate, but they're understood that on some level I'm making them of Hashem. So David HaMelech is saying something amazing, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I was in a difficult situation. I asked to be healed. I asked for refuah. You gave me that refuah. And that has opened my eyes to all of the other incredible things that you have given me in my life. You see, one of the other things that David HaMelech was a master at was the ability to compartmentalize. Meaning, many of us, when we undergo difficult circumstances, the difficulties overtake everything. Everything. So everything is a challenge. Everything is difficult. Now, if I were to take a step back or to look at my life from the outside in, that's not true. Are there challenges? Absolutely. Is my life all challenges? There are some people whose lives are all challenges. But I would venture to say that for most of us, when we encounter challenge or difficulty, there's an area of adversity, but there's a lot of other incredibly wonderful things that are happening as well. The challenge is most times adversity is like that, like that black cloud that obscures the sun, that obscures the light. All I see is adversity. And David HaMelech is saying over according to the Radak, you know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I was really sick and you answered my tefillos. And that's opened my eyes to all of the other times that you've answered my tefillos. And to all the things you answer for me each and every day. The things I articulate and the things I never even get a chance to articulate. But what I want to draw your attention to, and this is why I was unable to move past Perek Vav in Tehillim, is the Pasuk is strange. Right? Think about this in just Now generally, you can't really ask so many questions on the syntax of Tehillim. Why not? It's poetry, right? So in general, poetry is often redundant and poetry is often written in a way to make it sound beautiful and flowery. And again, unlike the Chumash, where every single word is measured, there is no such thing as an extra word in the Chumash. That's not necessarily the case in Tehillim. Tehillim is poetry. Tehillim is an expression of David. It's like almost like a free flow of consciousness of David HaMelech. There are plenty of extra words. There are plenty of unnecessary words. But what's striking about this particular Pasuk is as follows. Think about this just a moment. Shama Hashem Tichinasi. Hashem heard my prayer, my Tichin, my supplication. Hashem Tifilasi Yikach. Which means what? Which means what? Hashem accepted my prayer. Now what's the problem with that phrase, with that Pasuk? It's redundant. And it's profoundly redundant. Why? Because if the second part is true, then by definition, what? The first part is as well. If Hashem accepted my prayer, then it goes without saying that what? That He heard my prayer. So in other words, why do you have to say, Hashem heard my prayer? Shama Hashem techinasi, Hashem tefilasi yikach. Just say, Hashem tefilasi yikach. Hashem, you answered my tefillah. And then I understood. You heard it, you answered it. But why the need? For both phrases. So I want to share with you something. And again, there is, I, I owe all of you such a, such a debt of gratitude because um, 
such an, I feel so privileged to give this year, and there's such hashkacha in the way that the particular capital always ties in with the parasha. Literally incredible hashkacha. So take a look at number four. I want to share with you an incredible episode in this week's parasha that is an incredibly painful episode in the parasha. The Torah says as follows. Remember, just to give you the context, parasha's Vayetze, Yaakov Avinu runs away from home, finds refuge in the house of Lavan, there he meets Rachel. I don't want to spoil the whole story for you, right? But he meets Rachel, he wanted to marry Rachel, he ends up marrying Leah, then marries Rachel afterwards. Good. We know from the beginning, you know, it's interesting, on a biblical level, polygamy, marrying more than one wife is permitted. But you know, you know what Chazal called a second wife? A tzara. A tzara. Now that's not a knock on the second wife. It's, a, it's an insight into the dynamic of being married to more than one woman. There's a reason why these stories never work out in the Chumash. For one simple reason. Whenever you have two women vying for the attention of the same husband, it's a disaster. And it's a disaster every single time. It was a disaster by Avram, Hagar, and Sarah. And it's a profound disaster. Although even though, you know, it's interesting, it works out okay in the end. But when I say in the end, once everybody died, it worked out fine. But, but, but while everyone was alive, the Avra, excuse me, the Yaakov Rachelea triangle was a very, very, very complicated dynamic. So the Torah says over here, number four, Vatera Rachel Kilo Yolda, the Yaakov. Rachel saw that she was barren. She had not given birth to a child. Vatikani Rachel Ba'achosa. Rachel became jealous of her sister Leah. Vatomer al Yaakov. Rachel turns to Yaakov and she says, Havali Banim, give me children. Ve'im Ayin. And if not, it's like I'm dead. It's like I'm dead. A very dramatic pasuk. And dramatic on a variety of ways. You feel the intensity of emotion. Right? The Torah telling us, Rachel sees her situation. She's jealous of her sister. She says to Yaakov, give me children. And if I don't have children, it's as if I'm dead. I'm dead. So what's unfolding over here? So if you look at the Medrash number five, the Medrash says as follows, that what, what was Rachel's, what, what is this, give me children? What does, that, what does that mean? What's the nature of this interaction? So the Medrash writes, V'atomer al Yaakov havali banim, hispalel makom alai, kishem sha'asa avram l'sara, v'yitzchok nami l'rifka. So the Medrash understands that Rachel was making a very simple request of her husband. Daven for me. I don't see you davening for me. Right? Da- Davin for me. Your grandfather davened for your grandmother. Your father davened for your mother. I'm asking you to daven for me. Rashi understands that it was a bit more of an attack. Rashi says in number six, Havali, So according to Rashi, Rachel is attacking Yaakov. And she's saying, I don't understand. This is what you saw in your house growing up. You saw, I mean, he didn't literally see it, but you know that your mother was barren. And you know, the positive says, You know that your father, Yitzchak, did not stop davening until your mother was blessed with a child. So I don't understand you, Yaakov. So according to Rashi, she's attacking Yaakov because from her perspective, he's not davening for her. From her perspective, listen, he has Leah. He has Leah. And Baruch Hashem, Leah is having children. And so Rachel feels, you just don't care. You just don't care. It just doesn't matter to you what my particular situation is. So it's interesting. According to the Medrash, it's a request. Please daven for me. According to Rashi, it's a bit more of an attack 
almost saying, how could it be that you're not davening for me? Didn't you grow up in a home where a barren father davened for a barren mother? Yaakov Avinu's response, number seven. Vayichar af Yaakov berachel. Very dramatic. Yaakov gets angry. And by the way, charon af, charon af doesn't just mean angry. What does charon, literally what does charon af mean? Blazing nostrils, right? So it's like nostril flaring mad, right? Kaas is anger. Charon af is intense anger. Intense anger. We see this in Az Yashir. We say that Hashem caused the sea to split literally again with the, I don't know if the right word is breath, but with the air of his nostrils. So af Yaakov berochel. Yaakov gets angry at Rachel. And he says to her, Vayomer, hatachas elokim anochi? Am I God? Am I God? Am I, am I instead of God? Asher mano mimech pribaten? So, on a Pashat level, it sounds like what Yaakov is saying is, why are you attacking me? It's not me who's withheld children from you. It's not me who's decided you should be barren. I'm not a Kaddish Baruch. You know, the Gemara says that there are three keys that a Kaddish Baruch who holds on to, and he does not give them to anyone. And one of those keys is the Mafteach Shalchaya, the key of life. So Yaakov says, what do you want from me? Am I the one who has caused you to become barren? So the Ramban has a dramatic interpretation of this episode. The Ramban in number eight says as follows. Get ready for this. So listen to this. The Ramban says, okay, let, let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit because I just want to point out, by the way, you almost never see an exchange like this between husband and wife in Chomish. There was a little bit of an exchange with Avraham and Sarah, but Avram doesn't really respond to Sarah. What Avram says, remember again with the whole episode with Hagar, when Sarah felt that Hagar was mistreating her, so Avram says, okay, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me, tell me what you want to do. And I'm happy. We, we don't really find this type of caustic dialogue of Rachel attacking Yaakov. And it appears Yaakov Avinu kind of firing back in an intense way. So the Ramban says, what was Rachel saying to Yaakov? She was saying to him, Like we saw before, she was asking Yaakov, like we saw in Rashi and the Medrash, Davin for me. Davin for me. Aval she Yaakov, you're a tzaddik. You're a tzaddik. If you want something to happen, it will happen. And if it hasn't happened, you know why it hasn't happened? You know why it hasn't happened? You haven't tried hard enough. You, Yaakov, haven't tried hard enough. So davin and davin and davin until I get my child. Vim ayin, shetomis atzma betzar. And here's the threat, says the Ramban. The threat, says the Ramban, is that Rachel Yimenu says, I promise I will let myself die of pain. If you do not give me a child. This says Ramban was the threat. If I don't get my child, it doesn't say she'll die in pain. She will allow herself to die as a result of her pain. So she's saying to Yaakov, Davin, get me a child. And if not, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to die. Telling you now, I'm going to die. Dibra, 
Rabban says, Rachel Yiminu did not speak appropriately. She was in pain. She was in pain. She was also jealous of her sister. And she did not speak appropriately. The Chashva, now watch, this is incredible. The Chashva, Ki ba'avaso osa yis'ani Yaakov yilbash sak ve'efer. V'yispalo ad shiyu lobanim shlotamos b'tzara. You see, Rachel knew how much Yaakov loved her. So she figured, if she goes out and she, she, she dangles out there, the, I'm going to die if I don't get what I want. So what is, what is Yaakov going to do? He's going to put on sackcloth and he's going to fast and he's going to daven and he's going to do anything and everything within his spiritual power to go ahead and get a child. However, Vayichra Yaakov. So that, that, that was, so again, this is the Ramban. This is the Ramban. So Ramban says, that was Rachel's idea. Daven for me, but again, but there was a threat. I'm going to allow myself to die if you don't give me what I want. And she thought that this would move Yaakov into frenetic spiritual activity. But it didn't work. Vayichar af Yaakov. Yaakov got angry. Now, why did he get angry? She'in tfilas hatzadikim biyadam shetishma v'tana al kalpanim. Because Yaakov says, Rachel, you don't understand how tfilo works. Right? It's not just the pshat that you want something, you daven for something, and you get it. Even if you're a tzaddik, it doesn't work that way. So Yaakov Avinu felt this was an unfair expectation. That's not how it works. He says, Uba'avur shedibra, now his, his wording over here is very interesting. Uba'avur shedibra derech ga'agui hanoshim ha'ahuvos. Lahavchido b'misasa charanavo. The Ramban says, essentially, Yaakov felt manipulated. Yaakov felt manipulated. He says, because sometimes, sometimes, Dramban says, sometimes women could be dramatic. That's not me. I don't want to be clear. That's not my opinion. Not my opinion at all. That's Dramban. Right? Dramban says, sometimes, sometimes a woman could play the drama card. And she could play the drama card well. This time, says Dramban, it was overplayed. It was overplayed. And Yaakov says, you've overstepped. You've just overstepped. You're a smart lady. You know, again, remember, let's understand. Yaakov loved Rachel more than I think we even comprehend. Because remember, you know the story. He was supposed to marry Rachel. He was supposed to marry Rachel, right? Instead, he marries Leah. He marries Leah because Leah Bekrashis, because Rachel gave Leah the simon and the signs. Think about this for just a moment. Put yourself in Yaakov Avinu's shoes. Right, so you're showing up the Shabbat Brachas, everybody's all excited, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Only one little detail, you're married to the wrong woman, right? And why are you married to the wrong woman? Because the woman you wanted to marry betrayed you. She betrayed you, right? I, I just want to point out, it's beautiful. Rachel Iminu didn't want to embarrass her sister, fantastic. But she betrayed Yaakov. But she, she allowed Yaakov to marry someone who he did not want to marry. I don't know. If I was Yaakov, I'd say, you know what? Hatzlacha Rabba, right? No, no, good, good luck. Good luck, good luck. But yeah, Yaakov Avinu married her, right? Yaakov Avinu remained with her, which tells you about the bond that these two shared. So Yaakov says, you think I don't want to have children with you? Are you kidding? I worked for your father, the Russia, for 14 years just to marry you. But you're gonna, this is how you're going to behave? 
This is how you're going to talk. You're going to think like I hold all the keys to everything in the world, that I'm God, and I could just say, poof, you're pregnant. That's it. And, and worse than that, you're going to go ahead and you're going to play the drama card. And now you're going to say, if you don't get pregnant, you're going to die on me. That, that, that's, that's where we're holding. That's what we're doing. And so Yaakov Avinu gets angry, says the Ramban. He gets angry. He gets angry. Menu. So now the Ramban says, then Yaakov Avinu gives it back a little bit. And he says to her, by the way, it's not my problem, it's your problem. I have children. I have children. So whatever's happening over here is between you and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now we'll talk about that response in just a little bit. But that's, that's the strength of Yaakov Avinu's retort to Rachel. He goes on, Yaakov was very strong in his reaction to Rachel. Very strong. Because he thought that ultimately she was speaking inappropriately. So what happens? Says Rabban, how does the story end? Rachel says to Yaakov, you're right. You're right. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. And a few psukim later, the Pasuk says, Vayishma eleha elokim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu listened to Rachel. So once Rachel realizes, it's not up to Yaakov. It's not up to Yaakov. And most probably he's been davening this entire time. She realizes it's on me and she pivots. If you look in paragraph Bayes, he writes over here as follows. Um, okay, actually, this is, we, we can leave out paragraph Bayes. So according to the, this is this is incredibly dramatic and dynamic. I also think it's incredible because remember, the Torah, the Torah is there. The Torah is a guide of life. And the Avos and the Mos teach us how to live. Do you know how affirming a Ramban like this is? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many people have had conversations like this in the context of their marriage? Maybe not about children, right? But overly amplified dramatic conversations that really border on the inappropriate and totally counterproductive. And how affirming is it to see that, by the way, even great people sometimes get a little bit carried away. Even great people sometimes lose sight of what their significant other is capable of providing and not capable of providing. But yet the Medrash does something amazing. The Medrash in number nine takes Yaakov Avinu to task. The Medrash says, Vayichar af Yaakov berochel. Yaakov got angry at Rachel. The Medrash writes, Amalei HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu chastises Yaakov and he says, Kach onin es hamaikos? Yaakov, is this how you talk to a barren woman? Is this how you deal with a woman struggling with infertility? Is this how you respond to someone who makes herself vulnerable by telling you her pain? Yaakov, remember again, the Medrash says, Yaakov says to Rachel, in probably the sharpest part of his response, it's your problem, not my problem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has withheld children from you, not from me. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, well, you'll see Yaakov, 
because, quote-unquote, your sons will bow down in front of her son. That, of course, is a reference to fast-forwarding a couple of parashios where Yosef, the son of Rachel, is the viceroy over Egypt, and all of the sons of Leah bow down to Yosef. So you see something amazing, that the Medrash takes Yaakov Avinu to task for how he spoke to Rachel. So you see something amazing. So the Ramban, the Ramban doesn't seem to take Yaakov to task, right? The Ramban says, no, Yaakov felt that he had to respond in a much stronger, and by the way, it's so out of character for Yaakov, right? In other words, we never, we never see, Yaakov is an Ishtam Yoshev Olin. Yaakov is a gentle man, a simple man, a man who dwells. Remember, and I want to point out, by the way, if there's one meter that Yaakov has, what's the one meter of Yaakov? Yaakov is non-confrontational. Yaakov, right, we see this later on in the parasha. It's time to leave Lavan's house. How does Yaakov leave Lavan's house? How does he leave? He sneaks away. He doesn't want confrontation. Fast forward a little bit. Dina is abducted and raped by Shechem. So what does Yaakov say? Yaakov has a, has a whole plan, has a whole plan about how he's going to get his daughter back, what he's going to do. It's Shimon and Levi that go in and wipe out the town. This was not Yaakov Avinu's idea. Yaakov Avinu is not a confrontational person. He's actually conflict averse. Conflict averse. So the Ramban says, the fact that Yaakov responds like this in such a strong way, so out of character, was because he felt that Rachel was espousing flawed ideology and was taking the wrong approach to address their collective issues. Demetrius says that's all fine, but just because you have the right to retort or right to respond doesn't mean you could respond any way you want. Your wife was expressing her pain. Your wife was expressing her frustration. Your wife was telling you that she feels you don't care and you're not there. And you respond, it's your problem, not my problem. You respond, I have kids. You're the one who doesn't have kids. That's how you talk. The marriage takes Yaakov to task. The kach onenes hamaikos, this is how you respond to a barren woman. And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you will see her son will become the dominant one over your sons. So what's interesting, we begin to think about this a little bit. Because according to the Medrash, so the Medrash faults Yaakov Avinu for how he responded to Rachel, which then begs the question, so from the perspective of the Medrash, what should Yaakov have said? Right? What would have been a proper response to his beloved Rachel? So it's interesting because you begin to see that in life, there are different types of responses for different situations. For example, the Gemara number 10 says as follows. I'm going to be Shoban Levi. Ein omrim bifnei ha-meis, elo dvarov shel meis. Which we'll, we'll expand on this a little bit. The Chazal tell us, you are not allowed to give divrei tanchum in words of consolation. Bemi shemeso mutol lefanov. Literally again, when the dead are right there, right? When loss is fresh or at a levaya, you are not allowed to give words of consolation. Why can't you give words of consolation literally again, but me, with someone whose dead is right in front of them? Why can't you give words of consolation? Anyone who has endured loss knows why. Because you're not receptive to it. Not receptive to it, right? I'm, I'm not ready. Whatever you, whatever you have, whatever you know, pearls of wisdom or beautiful ideas, which there are many, I'm not ready to hear it, 
right? So Chazal say, in the aftermath of tragedy, don't share words of consolation. And by the way, this goes even further. This is actually very important, not our topic for tonight, but this is why people very often misunderstand proper etiquette for a shiva home, right? Proper etiquette for a shiva home is you don't speak unless spoken to, right? You see, the difference is most of us feel very awkward with silence. So because of that, we'll generally just talk about whatever, right? And sometimes we think that it's even like our mission to distract the mourner. But in fact, there's nothing further from the truth. The beauty of Shiva is the ability to lose yourself in your loss. Not forever, only for seven days, because you can't do it for longer than that, because then it becomes destructive. But there are no words. You walk in, you're there. If the other, if the mourner wants to talk to you, they'll talk to you. If they don't want to talk to you, it's okay just to sit in silence as well. Because sometimes the proper response is no response. Right? Sometimes the proper response to a difficult situation is just to be a listening ear. You don't have to have, we think, you know, we're often put, we, we love to have the answers for everything. So when we see someone who's going through a loss, I want to tell them the thing that's going to make them feel better. The truth is, anyone who goes through a loss knows there's no thing that makes you feel better. Time helps create perspective. And over time, you begin to adjust to your new reality. But rarely does a person say, oh, you know what, I suffered loss. Oh, but that person who came in and started quoting to me every single Ma'amar Chazal that they learned from ninth grade until now, oh, that made such a difference in my life. More often than not, people are profoundly resentful of that and would rather, thank you for the piety, but I'm struggling here with trying to figure out like what my life is going to look like. Chazal understood this. So sometimes the right reaction to something is not to say anything at all. But I'll show you something else that's fascinating. And kind of along these same lines. And it just struck me. If you take a look at number 11. So this is from last week's parasha. Okay, so we're going from this week's parasha, Yaakov and Rachel, back to last week's parasha, to Yaakov Avinu, the episode of Yaakov going in to go ahead and get the brachos from his father, from Yitzchak. Yitzchak is blind. You know the story. Yaakov Avinu dresses up as Esav. So the Pasuk says, Vayovo el Oviv, number 11. Vayovo el Oviv, Vayomer. I'm sorry, Vayomer, Hineni. Mi, I'm sorry, Vayomer Avi. Yaakovinu walks in, again dressed up as Esav. Yaakovinu calls out, Avi, my father. Vayomer Hineni, Mi Atabini. Yaakov, as Yitzchak Avinu says, Yes, I'm here, I'm here. Who is this? Who is this? Right? Yaakovinu is already, because again, remember, they don't have the same voice. They don't have the same voice. Vayomer Yaakov El Aviv. Yaakov says to his father, Anochi Esav Bichorecha. I am Esav, your son, your firstborn. I've done what you've asked of me. Please stand up. Come, or she said, please come forward, sit and eat. Beautiful. So it was very interesting to note over here is as follows. The Medjish writes, focusing on the phrase, Ani Esav Bechorecha, or Anochi Esav Bechorecha, right? Yaakov says in the beginning of verse 19, I'm in source number 11, Vayomer Yaakov al Aviv, Yaakov says to his father, Anochi Esav Bechorecha, which we translate as, I am Esav, your firstborn, right? That, that's the ruse. Remember, Yaakov, you know, is doing this because his mother told him he has to do it. Rivka gave him an order, and Yaakov, you know, is being, he's being mechaved his mother, and he's listening. So the Medrash says something very interesting. The Medrash says, So the Medrash does something very interesting. The Medrash says, Yaakov wasn't telling a falsehood. He wasn't lying. 
What do you mean he wasn't lying? He says, Anochi Esav Bicharecha. I'm Esav, your firstborn. The Medrash song, you have to read a little bit differently. Hifsik Hadibar Va'amar, Anochi, Kama, Aval Esav Bicharecha. When Yaakov asks, sorry, when Yitzchak asks Yaakov, who are you? The Medrash says that what Yaakov was really saying is, we read it, we read it as, Anochi Esav Bicharecha. The Medrash says, no, it's Anochi, I am me. I, I'm Yaakov. Kama? Esav Bechorecha. Esav is your firstborn. Rashi quotes this medrash as well in an effort to show that Yaakov Avinu did to the best of his ability not to lie. Not to lie. It's kind of hard not to lie when you're impersonating someone else. But, but again, that was what his mother told. Remember, this was not Yaakov's idea. And we see in the psukim Yaakov's discomfort with it. But he was listening to his mother. But says the medrash to kind of lessen the lie, he, t- he tweaks his words in a nuanced fashion. Anochi, I'm Yaakov, Esav Bechorecha. But look at number 13. And I'm going to t- be honest with you, meaning it's always bothered me, this Majrish, a little bit, because it seems to really fly in the face of the Pasha Pshat. Right? Pasha Pshat is Yaakov Avinu, is dressing up as Esav. He's going in as Esav. He's telling his father he's Esav. And in fact, if you look at the Medrash, Seichel Tov, and number three, we have conflicting Midrashim. Look what the Medrash says. He says, he says, so, the med- the med- so first of all, Seichel Tov quotes the Medrash, the Psikta Zutrasa number 12, and he says, I don't believe it. It, does, it doesn't make any sense. Anochi Esav Becha only means one thing, which is, which is, I am Esav, your firstborn. That was the declarative statement that Yaakov Avinu was making. Don't give me, says the Medrash in number, in number 13, Anochi, I'm me, but Esav, Becharecha, Esav is your son. But the Medrash says something amazing. Look at the underlying lines. If you want to find, if you want to be down the Kaf Sechus, you want to give Yaakov the benefit of the doubt, here's what you can do. Kivade Amrshu Esav. Of course Yaakov said that he was Esav. Of course he said that he was Esav. That was the entire ruse. That was the entire plan. What we do begin to see is that the Torah is telling us that sometimes you're allowed to change the truth for some greater good. Yaakov wasn't the first person to do this. Sari Imenu. Actually, the truth is, it wasn't Sari Imenu. Well, it was Sari Imenu, but it was Akadish Baruch Hu first who changes the truth in order to preserve Shalom, right? Remember again, when Sari hears that she is going to have a child at the age of 90, so what was her response? She laughs and she says, Oh, but my husband is old. And when Akadish Baruch Hu tells Avraham, Why did Sarah laugh? She said, I am old, she, right? Hashbarach who changed it. So we see from here that sometimes you're allowed to change the truth when it serves some greater good. Now, you have to be very, very careful how you apply that concept, right? And when you apply that concept and when, and ultimately again, because once you begin to manipulate the truth, unfortunately, it becomes a downward spiral. But says the Seichel Tov, says the Medrash, Yaakov, I mean, who is saying, don't give me Anochi, I'm me, but Esav is it. No, he was saying Anochi, Esav, Bechorecha. And again, I bet he's lying. Yeah, he's lying. He's lying, but he was lying because his mother told him this was a necessary evil. That sometimes, you know, there's a concept, there's a concept in Halacha of an Avera Lishma. Now, do not try this at home. But an Avera Lishma means that sometimes there's a concept of, of an Avera that is actually committed 
for the purpose of a greater good. Right? We, and we have dramatic examples of this. Esther HaMalka is an example of this. We have some very dramatic examples of this. Yehudis and the Hanukkah story is an example of this. But again, so says the Medrash, Yaakov Avinu lied. He lied. But at the end of the day, that's what the circumstances demanded. But you know, I saw, I saw this Medrash. I was looking at this Medrash on Erev Shabbos. And it struck me because, meaning, even when the Medrash number 12 says, Anochi, Esav Bechorecha, it's such a twisting of the words, right? And it so doesn't go with the narrative. But perhaps the Medrash number 12 is trying to convey to us something else. That perhaps what's unfolding over here, and this ties back a little bit to last week's year, because if you remember again, right, last week we spoke about Yitzchak, right? Yitzchak loved Esav, right? We spoke about that, right? So remember again, how we introduced to this family. We're introduced, Vayehav Yitzchak es Esav kitzayid befiv, so perhaps the way to read the Pasuk, and perhaps this is what the Medrash is struggling with, is Yaakov Avinu walks into his father. He walks into his father. And he's walking into a father who he knows favors his older brother. He knows it. He knows it. Because the Psukim don't seem to indicate that either parent made any attempt to hide the fact that they had favorites. Yitzchak had his. And again, there was Svaras. We saw last week, there were reasons for it. Yaakov Avinu walks in and perhaps what he says in that one phrase is, Anochi Esa Becharecha. Perhaps what he says is like this. Father, you want to know who's here? Anochi. It's me. And you know, I have one wish in life that you would love me like Esav Bechorecha. The one thing I want more than anything in this world is not your brachas. It's your love. The one thing I want more than anything in this world is to know that you feel about me the way you feel about Esav Bechorecha. And in that moment, and remember, understand, the episode with the brachos, just so you know, Yaakov got the brachas, but to a certain degree, it ruined the family. Because remember again, after that episode, Yaakov has to run away from home and he never comes home again. I mean, he comes home again, but by the time he comes home, remember, he doesn't come home. His mother already passed away. He misses his beloved mother's levaya. He's not there. He comes back. Yitzchak is already an old man. His father passes away a short time later. The family's done. Yitzchak, right? So, so again, Yaakov runs away. Esau is profoundly resentful of both his father and his mother. He runs away. And essentially, Rivka and Yitzchak live out their years in a broken family, in a profoundly broken situation. So it's almost as if the Torah is giving us the moment right before everything falls apart. Isn't it incredible? Because we look at Yaakov getting the brachas as everything coming together. And to a certain degree, it is everything coming together. But it's also the event that causes everything else to unravel. And perhaps it's at that moment that the Torah gives us a window into Yaakov Avinu's reflective moment. He stands there at the doorway. Father, Father, Vayomer Avi, Vayomer Hineni Bini, Mi'ata, Mi'ata Bini, who are you? And Yaakov says, who am I? Who am I? What a good kasha. Father, Anochi, I'm Yaakov. I'm Yaakov. But I wish, I just wish, life wasn't like this. I wish 
that our family wasn't so complicated like this. I wish the dynamics weren't quite this way. I wish, Esav Bechorecha, that you loved me the way you love your firstborn. So ask yourself, why does the Torah need to tell us this? Why does the Torah need to share this reflective moment of Yaakov Avinu with us? Because I think what the Torah is teaching us is another incredible lesson. You see, the Torah doesn't record a response to Yaakov Avinu's reflective question. Why? Because the Torah is teaching us that sometimes when people say things, they don't need a response. They just need to be heard. Sometimes I say things in life not because I'm looking for an answer and not because I'm looking for a pearl of wisdom and not even because I'm looking for a solution because sometimes there is none of that to be had. But sometimes I just need to say something because I need to either get it off my chest, I need to somehow deal with it and by articulating it, I deal with it. And all I need from the person on the other end is just to be a listening ear. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your answers. I just need your attention. And so we, the reader of the Chumash, are privy to this incredibly vulnerable and painful moment of Yaakov Avinu, where he says, Anuchi, I am Yaakov, but all I want is to be loved like Esav Bechorecha. And there's no response. There's no dialogue. There's just simply an unburdening of self. Because sometimes, I remember we're talking about different reactions to different situations. So sometimes in the aftermath of tragedy, there's nothing to say. And sometimes when people say something, they're not expecting an answer. They're not expecting a response. Sometimes you just have to allow people to be heard. And now we understand why the Medrash holds Yaakov Avinu accountable accountable for how he responded to Rachel. Rachel makes an outrageous statement. An outrageous statement. You never davened for me. You've not cared about me. You have Leah. You have your own family. And you know what? I'm just going to die. I'm just going to die. And what should Yaakov Avinu's response have been? What should his response have been? Nothing. Because at the end of the day, Rachel wasn't looking for a response. Rachel was looking to express pain. You know, all of us have moments like this. It's kind of like, you know, often a person, a person is, like a, is like a dam that is holding back turbulent emotional waters. And the dam could hold back a lot. But sometimes the dam also has a release valve. Because if you don't find a way to drain off some of the water, the water will bring down the dam. People are the same way. Sometimes I just need to say something. And not because I think you have an answer. You think Rachel didn't know how this works? Rachel was a tzaddikis. This is not Rachel Schwartz. This is Rachel Imenu, right? I'm saying, who are we talking about over here? Who are we talking about over here? This is Mama Rachel. This is the woman who is going to convince the Rebano Shal Olam to bring the Geula. You know, everybody speaks about that by Rachel Imenu. When we left Eretz Yisrael, we went by the tomb of Rachel Imenu. And Rachel Mevaka Abana, she comes out. But you know, the Zohar writes that when Mashiach comes and we go back to Eretz Yisrael, do you know what we pass? We pass Kever Rachel again. This is Rachel Imenu. So she doesn't know how Tzvila works. She doesn't know that Yaakov is not a magician, he's a tzaddik. 
He's a tzaddik. There's a big difference between a magician and a tzaddik. Right? A magician could manipulate a whole bunch of things to produce a particular result. A tzaddik does his best, but sometimes he doesn't get what he wants. Rachel doesn't know that. Of course she knows it. She was just a woman in profound pain. And all she needed was someone to just listen to her. And who was she going to talk to? She was going to talk to Leah, right? Who, again, that was a difficult relationship. Who was she going to talk to? Her mother passed away already. Her father, Lavan, not exactly the kind of guy you want to confide in, right? So who is she going to talk to? Who does Rachel Imenu have in this world except Yaakov? And the marriage is Yaakov. All you have to do is listen. Is listen, don't say anything. Because of what she's saying is outrageous. It doesn't make any sense. It's hyperbolic. It's dramatic. But it's just an expression of her pain. And your job is not to respond. Your job is simply to listen. You know, there's... Um, last week, last week, there was an incredible article in the Wall Street Journal. This is on November 2nd. And the title of the article, title of the article, I read this with my wife, title of the article is, Toxic Positivity is Very Real and Very Annoying. Now, I'm not going to read to you the whole article. I'm just going to read to you a couple of, listen to this. Sometimes, by, by uh, author is Elizabeth Bernstein, sometimes the worst thing you can say to a person who's feeling bad is cheer up. Chip Hooley learned this the hard way. At the beginning of the pandemic, his daughter Hillary called him in a panic. She and her husband recently purchased an apartment in Brooklyn. Now she was worried that real estate prices in New York were falling and her friends were leaving the city. Mr. Hooley, 60 years old, a financial firm executive in Casanova, New York. I never knew there was a place called Casanova, New York. It looks beautiful. You can Google it. Casanova interrupted her. Don't worry. This will all work out for the best, he said, launching into a pep talk. I gave her all these positive thoughts, he said. I felt like Batman saving the world. Then his wife, who was sitting next to him, piped up. That was the most annoying conversation I've ever heard. She said, your daughter wanted to talk to her father and you didn't even listen. Always look on the bright side of life? Heck no. Pushing away difficult emotions, such as sadness, fear, and forcing ourselves or others to be positive can be harmful to our mental well-being and our relationships, psychologists say. This is because practicing false cheerfulness, which they call toxic positivity, keeps us from addressing our feelings and the feelings of others. Toxic positivity is positivity given in the wrong way, in the wrong dose, at the wrong time, says David Kessler, a grief expert. Yet... I'm just reading you sections of this. Yet difficult emotions are a part of life. To suppress them is to deny reality. Research shows that trying to stifle those emotions makes you feel even worse because you never coped with them. Plus, they will pop, pop back up eventually. The brain power it takes to push the emotion away keeps you focused on it. Telling someone who is in emotional pain to buck up is invalidating and dismissive. Not only are you diminishing their feelings, you're telling them that these feelings are part of their own problem. A recently widowed woman in Philadelphia whose refrigerator conked out the night before she was hosting family members for a holiday dinner recalled how a neighbor told her, in the scheme of things, 
This is a very minor problem. It wasn't minor for me, she said. How can we avoid forced positivity? To better ourselves, to better help ourselves with someone who is down, she you two more sections. Start by recognizing that it is different from hope or optimism. Those emotions are rooted in reality, while toxic positivity is a denial of it. Don't judge yourself or others for feeling difficult emotions. Be compassionate. Tell yourself, I am feeling sad or lonely in the pandemic, and that is normal. Remember, it's not your job to solve the other person's problems, nor do they want you to. You don't want to listen to, to respond and give advice, says Dr. Kessler. You want to listen to understand. I'll just end with one last story. Mr. Hooley took his wife's comment that his positivity was annoying to heart. It was eye-opening to realize that it's okay to be miserable once in a while. Now, Mr. Hooley tries to be a better listener. Last week, his daughter told him she was looking for a physical therapist because of back pain brought on by her pregnancy. At first, he launched into a positive spin. At least your pain is because of a good reason, he said. But then he caught himself and told her, that's no fun, and let her talk. Being heard was nice, said his daughter. You want to feel okay to not feel good in the moment. Such an incredible idea of toxic positivity. And you know, we are the people of optimism. And often we think that what optimism means is you got to always have a positive, optimistic, upbeat perspective all of the time. And that's simply not true. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to have difficulties. It's okay not to feel happy. It's okay to feel that what's not okay is to allow yourself to remain in that state for unending periods of time. But this session, I never heard of this idea. This was last, last Wednesday's Wall Street Journal. Toxic positivity. And apparently there's like a whole body of psychological literature about it. Toxic positivity. Right? Whoever heard it, we always thought positive, positive, positive. It's going to be okay. It's gonna be. I'm guilty of toxic positivity. I realized afterwards. But it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So why is this important? Because what did Rachel need from Yaakov? What did she need from him? The answer is she didn't need anything from him. Because what was she going to tell? What was he going to tell her? It's going to be okay? That would have been even worse. That would have been even worse. He, she certainly doesn't need a muster schmooze from him. Because whatever he's going to tell her, she knows already. All she needed was someone to listen. All she needed was someone to listen. The same way that when Yaakov Avinu, and amazingly enough, Yaakov knew this, because the same way when he stood at the threshold of his father's home, and his father said, who is this? And Yaakov Avinu says, wow, who is this? Anochi, I am me. And all I want is to be loved like Esau Bechorecha. Yaakov too did not need someone to answer him. He just needed to be heard. And now if we loop back, we understand the question to him. Remember again, 45 minutes ago, we had a question on Kapitel Vav. What do we say in Kapitel Vav? In Pasuk Yod, Shama Hashem Techinasi, Hashem Tefilasi Ikach. Remember, what was our question? What was our question? Why do you need both? It's redundant. Why do you have to say that Hashem heard my prayer and He accepted my prayer? Just say He accepted it and that's it. Because what David HaMelech is saying is, it's not all about the acceptance of prayer. That's not what it's all about. Sometimes, 
the most powerful part of the dialogical experience of davening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not getting what I'm asking for. Because you know what? Sometimes I'm not even asking for anything. Sometimes the most powerful part of tefillah is just what? Knowing that I'm heard. Knowing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is listening to me. Knowing that I'm like Rachel Imenu, feeling really overwhelmed and feeling really terrible about my life circumstances. And I feel, I know there's so much good, there's so much good. Don't give me any toxic positivity. I got it, right? Everything is great. I have so many brachas. I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm in a difficult situation. And David HaMelech says, in those moments, just know, not everyone has another human being who could give them a listening ear, which is unfortunate, because everyone needs it, but not everyone has it. But all of us have HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who gives us that listening ear. All of us have that Ribbono Sha'olam who, when I'm in pain, allows me to talk, doesn't respond, doesn't pass judgment, doesn't give me musr, just simply listens. And so in that Pasuk Yud, in verse 10, until David HaMelech is talking about the two dynamics of his prayer experience. It's true. There's the Hashem Tefillah Siyikach. Absolutely. There's the fact that a Kodesh Baruch who answers my Tefillos, which is absolutely incredible. But just as incredible as the God who answers my prayers and give me, gives me what I want is the God, Shama Hashem Tichinasi. You listen to me. You listen to me. When I'm in pain and I need to release, I need to release from the, from the pressure valve. When I'm in pain and I feel overwhelmed and I just need to talk it out, maybe I don't have someone who will understand, but you understand everything. You understand everything. And I'll never get a sharp response from you. I'll never get a mustache moose from you. All I'll get is empathy, compassion, and unbridled love. And I think what comes out from all of this are two really incredible lessons. So first of all, in general, in our relationships, in our relationships, it's always important to gauge what the necessary response to a particular situation is. Sometimes people want our advice. Sometimes people ask a question, a loved one asks a question, a friend asks a question, someone else asks a question, and they want guidance. They, they want a response. They want advice. And in those moments when we're called upon to give advice, we absolutely should. But very often in life, and, and then there are times of like tragic loss where we saw, the best thing is say nothing. And then there are other times, and this is so incredibly important to know, sometimes people say things and they don't want you to say anything back. Do you know how much friction is created in relationships when people miss out on these cues and they respond to something? And sometimes like Yaakov, they respond harshly to something. And meanwhile, it starts a whole other dynamic. And that's not even what anyone needed. All Rachel Imenu needed was for Yaakov to listen. I don't need you to say anything. So to engage in our relationships, when do I give advice? When do I listen? How do I provide optimism, but ultimately avoid that toxic positivity. And you know, after I read this article, in all seriousness, I thought to myself, so I, I recognized a number of situations where I did that to other people. I recognized it. And I also realized that people did it to me. And you don't really think about it because we're conditioned to think, always be positive, always be positive, always be positive. But to recognize that, no, there's a time for that as well. That's in relationships. And for ourselves, what we also learn from all these episodes is that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. Rachel Imenu wasn't okay. Isn't that incredible? 
Rachel Imenu wasn't okay, right? You would expect, if you were scripting this, that Rachel Imenu, right, she's barren, she's jealous of her sister, she's now has to play, to a certain degree, like, second fiddle wife to Leah, and you would have thought that, like, she's skipping along Haran, you know, to, you know, humming Uncle Maishi's Gamzu Latova, you know, everything is great, she's at Tzadikah, she's wonderful, and she's not. And she's not. And she's miserable. And she's in pain. And she's, she, again, Rachel Imenu gets out of it. She pulls herself out of it, which is the ultimate testament to her courage. But if you think about this, by the way, how many stories does the Torah tell us about great people who are not okay? Sari Imenu wasn't okay for a particular period of time, right? Rachel Imenu wasn't okay. Yaakov Avinu wasn't okay. It teaches us that sometimes in life it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be in pain. What's not okay is to allow yourself to wallow in it and to lose yourself in it. And this is what Rachel Imenu teaches us. Because after she expresses her pain, and she realizes, you know what, my husband's right. It's not him. It's not him. I need to figure this out. She takes the reins of her life, and she does whatever she can to change her circumstances. So we learn about how to deal with relationships, and we learn ultimately again about ourselves. It's okay not to be okay. Just it's not okay to not be okay forever. It's okay to not be okay for a certain amount of time, but then like Rachel Yemenu, I gotta have to get it together and figure out a way to navigate forward in my new normal. These are the dynamics of our ancestors. These are the dynamics of the Avos and the Mo's. And this is why they are the most incredible role models for us. Because what they show us is that people could, be, could exhibit real humanity, but at the same time soar to the highest levels of spiritual accomplishment. I could be regular in one moment. I could be in pain one moment. I could even be inappropriate one moment. And in the next, I can lift myself up and become the best version of myself. We'll stop over here for tonight. Next week, we are continuing in Parak Zion. We're not doing Parak Vav again, at least for a little while in Merit Hashem. Everyone have a wonderful evening. Actually, next week we may actually start Hanukkah. So just to just stay, stay tuned with that a little bit. Also, yes, sorry, just a scheduling announcement. I know we had a, we had a sheer scheduled for tomorrow morning, the opening shear on Tefillah. Unfortunately, because of other circumstances, the shear is not going to happen tomorrow morning. It will happen in Mirza Hashem next Wednesday morning. An email went out from the shul already, so it'll be next Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. here in the shul. Apologize for any inconvenience.